0: Reclaiming Identity, sharing stories of struggle, pride, and redemption in reconnecting with our heritage. Hi, I'm Dora, and I'm Dahlia, and we're bringing you Reclaiming Identity as part of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. Do you feel a part of the Jewish story? Is your family what pops up when people think
1: of Jews? At Reclaiming Identity, we celebrate and explore the greater Jewish experience. We encourage you to tell your story and take pride in your heritage as it is a part of
0: your identity. Listen to other people's stories, ask questions, be curious, and reclaim reclaim your your identity. identity.
1: Today we're here with Menashe Chaimov. Thank you so much for joining us today from sunny Miami. Are you in Miami right now? yes i am i know you moved there recently and we'll talk about that a little bit but um i want to first say tell us a little bit about yourself just in general three sentences who you are
2: three sentences yep that's uh (laughs) that's gonna be tough we're gonna get
1: much more in depth don't worry but let's start got it
2: so in three sentences i would describe myself as Menashe um Fourth-generation community organizer, I'm a founder and CEO of an organization called SAMI Sephardic American Mizrahi Initiative that is uh, works on college campuses and creates the Sephardic life on college campuses. And I'm also an adjunct professor of Bukharan Jewish history and culture at Queens College.
1: And do you continue to commute back to Queens College now that you moved down to Miami.
2: Actually, it worked out perfect for me because the CUNY system asked their faculty to, you know, they wanted to have at least a certain percentage of people to be remote. Um, And when that offer happened, I signed up for it right
1: away. Perfect. We're talking in Reclaiming Identity about standing up for one's heritage and making it a greater part of the Jewish narrative. Like you said, you're a community activist, fourth generation community activist. So let's start with first, what is your personal Jewish heritage?
2: My personal Jewish heritage is Bukharian Jew. At first, I thought, you know, Bukharian Jew, it's just uh, like any other Jew. Until I came to America and people started asking me, what does that mean?
1: I'm going to stop you there. Came to America from where?
2: (laughs) Oh, good. Until I came to America from Uzbekistan. I was born in Uzbekistan, a city called Samarkand, which was the main route of the Silk Road in Central Asia. Right now, if you Google on YouTube, you'll see a lot of things going on with Central Asia. Um, a lot of governments looking at it as the main factor for the economy. And it looks like they trying to revive the Silk Road, but that's where I come from. Um, I lived there up until uh, the age of 14. And arriving to New York, uh, people start asking me, you know, what it means to be Bukharian? What is that Bukharian? And I start always trying to answer to them, but because I live this life and because I do Bukharian way of life, it was very hard for me to explain to people without knowing what is it something that they do not know about me. And that's when, the moment, I would say, where I actually started to uncover and try to figure out what does it means to be Bukharian happened at the time when I was working at the Bukharian Tea Lounge. We had a tea lounge program at Queens, New York. It was for the Bukharian teenagers who went to public school. And um, it was opened because district attorney office from Queens asked the JCCA Jewish Childcare Association, which is over 100 years old. Um, institution social service institution in New York Uh, and they've asked them because there were so many Jewish kids on the streets in Queens after school doing nothing small percentage of Bukharan Jews at that time would go to yeshiva so they would stay at school till five to six o'clock the vast majority would go to public school and finish school at one three but the parents would be working long hours hence being an immigrant and and the children would be just outside. So they started this program and I was invited to be the marketing director to try to get as many kids possible through those doors. And I still remember sitting in that office and a student comes into it and asks me, Manasha, please tell me, we're learning about Anna Frank in our school as part of the high school curriculum. And we're learning about the period of Holocaust. However, My other counterparts, other Jewish students in in school, they have stories about it. They cry about it. And they remembering all of this sad information that they they received from their parents um, and maybe some of them even from grandparents. How come I cannot connect with them? What am I missing? And at that moment, I could have just Googled it, give them some information, tell them, by the way, Bukharian Jewish community, they were part of the Holocaust, but on the other side, and they were fighting with the Red Army against Nazi Germany uh, during the World War II. And instead of just telling that short story, I've asked the student, tell me how many other students out there thinking exactly the same way or confused in the same way and curious in the same way. And she told me, there are many of us. So we set up a meeting. Uh, it was a Thursday night, no pizza, no drinks, nothing. You know how a lot of times we try. Yeah, to everything's engage. about food. <laughs> we try to engage students with food. Here, they show up on their own and they all share the same, um, same challenge that they have. And what we discussed and we decided to do is what if we grab cameras, get a van, and one Sunday, we just sit on the van and drive to their grandparents and record their stories. And through that process, we're driving for a few Sundays and recording the stories of their grandparents and later on other parents, other grandparents. We discovered a Bukharian community who were World War II veterans during the, the, during the World War II. And on we discovered how there, they fought two wars. One war on the front line and second war back in Uzbekistan, when they accepted all these refugees from the Europe and from Poland and Ukraine and Belarus who fled the war. And they were helping to resettling them and making sure that they have shelter, they have food, they have clothing, and they'd be able to continue the, Jewish, uh, the Judaism. And at that moment, that small story, small meeting, turned into a documentary movie that today you'll be able to view on YouTube called Bukharian Lens. It's a 17-minute video, very short video, that was on many different festivals around the country and actually around the world.
1: And we'll have to put a link to it. We'll have a link to it in this podcast. So look at the comments below and we'll have a link to it, with your permission, of course. Sure. Um, so you said you were born in Samarkand and you were there until you were 14. Tell us a little bit about what was it like to be a Jew there at that point.
2: It was the happiest moment of my life. And the interesting part about being Jewish there, you would never forget that you're Jewish. Mm -hmm. There is always sometimes somewhere people will remind you that you are Jew. It could be in your school setting, among the classmates. It could be amongst the institution in a school of, you know, um, if you're not studying well enough, or let's say you're getting into trouble with with the principal, they would always remind you, by the way, you need to take school because English is important when you go to America. Or like when you leave this country, you know, in Israel, you're going to need math. Like there was always insinuating of like, you're going to leave this country one way or the other. So there is always this me- feeling of um, we are in a transit there. It's not like our place of home. And that means that there is going to be a time when we have to leave. So even though I didn't, I never felt that way that I have to leave. But people were kind of telling us all around that, all right, one day you're going to leave. So did you feel a negative?
1: Did you feel like it was anti-Semitism or just they expected you to leave?
2: So let me ask you a question.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. You right now in your house and you have a warmth in your house and you put a lot of thoughts into your house and you, you know, you celebrate Shabbat in your house. And imagine somebody walks into your house and says, oh, by the way, when you decide to leave, I would like to purchase your house. And you see the old menorah that you have. I'll, I'll keep it. You don't have to worry about it. And you're like, wait, but I'm not leaving anywhere. Right. You know, I, I have this house. I'm planning to live here. Where are you sending me already? So I think that moment is is what I was experiencing at that time.
1: It's the discomfort, and yet, I, do you know how many generations back your family was there?
2: Yes. I mean, the the, the historically, what we know is that the, the Jewish community. The first settlement of the Jewish community in Central Asia region was after the destruction of the first temple. So when the when the Jewish temple was destroyed, excuse me,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, the Jewish people were in Babylon, in Iraq in Babylon. And when the Tires the Great, the Persian King gets into power, he allows the Jewish people to go back. So 20% of people goes back, but the vast majority continue going eastward and ending it up in Central Asia. So my family and my ancestors never saw a second temple. And then we went back to Israel until the time when people start uh, going to immigration. So we've been there a pretty long time.
1: Right, and so you think about it, because you said we're, they saw us as transient, and yet your family was there for thousands of years. To, in my mind, I'm trying to make sense of it. It's a little complicated. And now,
2: and now imagine a, a 13 or 14-year-old boy trying to make sense of it as well, coming back home and saying, Mom, when are we leaving? She's like, where are you going? (laughs)
0: Right. Yeah.
1: So, okay. So now we had this life there that was comfortable, but a little uncomfortable. And you had everything you needed there in terms of your Jewish life.
2: Yeah, I was going. So I was part of this. uh, I was going to Jewish school during the the morning from like 8 to 12. And then I would go to public school um, uh, during the day um, from 12 to 3. And that's where I learned to read and there was a yeshiva and <clears throat> that same yeshiva was during the Soviet Union was the underground yeshiva that I went to. So it was continuation of that of that school. Um, our family also had a mikvah there uh, for uh, ritual bath for for people to use. So in the city of Samarkand and still exists. It's not operational. We we, we tried to revive it right now. At that time, we had a mikvah, we had a synagogue. I went to Jewish school. Uh, My mom also was one of the uh, person who uh, helped to start a Jewish school for younger girls because I have two older sisters, so it was a school for them. Um, And my father was going to Kolo. It was a pretty kind of robust uh, Jewish uh, community. And I still remember that time when you, when I moved from the Um, new city to the old city, which is Machalah, which is the Jewish quarter, I still remember as you walk on Thursday, for example, and you hear singing inside each of people's houses, and you might think, what are they singing about it? As you walk into those houses, you see a people gathering and sitting. What they were celebrating is the memorial event of somebody who passed either recently or years, uh, many years ago. And it would happen in Houses to Houses, where people used to gather to do Yushvor, which is a, 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 a time of Yomazika, right? Like a time of, I mean. Or, or in
1: Yiddish, site
2: right? site exactly. So site or Yushvor. And I still remember that moment as you're walking by. And I think I won't be able to get the same feeling um, anywhere else. When you're walking and you hear people praying and saying, Kaddish and almost in every other houses and they were filled with people um coming and supporting families
1: but you mentioned that the school went underground when it became the ussr but people I, weren't afraid to say kaddish out loud and they weren't afraid to go to kollel. or
2: so i think we need to uh, i moved to america in 2001 so so the memories that i just described was between the uh, 1991 until 2001. So that's after the fall of the Soviet Union. So before of that, yes, that's when people were afraid and you probably wouldn't hear as much what I heard.
1: People started to come back.
2: Correct. So people started, they always had it, but they were doing it hidden. They were hiding it. They were trying to fit in. They tried to, you know, not to uh, go to synagogue as much or as private, Um, try to go as discreet as possible. And people had they own synagogues um, throughout the city, uh, like a small shtibla, right? Like people are saying another Yiddish word that we could use.
1: Yeah, well, we're just going to throw Yiddish in. There. That's okay. Well, one of the unique things is also um, the Bukharian Jews are unique in that they're Russian-speaking Svartin. And that's, it, it, I think people need to understand that in your head too. First of all, we're all part of, one Jewish nation. So we can throw in words of all different languages like we've been doing, and I think that's beautiful. But also, it's a Russian speaking community of Sephardi Jews, or sorry, Bukharian Jews, right? It's not, didn't come through Spain, like you said. They came straight from the first temple. So I think that's an important thing for us to keep in mind. So let's trace your steps. So, yes, they tell you you're not going to stay here, even though there is an active Jewish life there right? We have the schools. I'm assuming you have uh, kosher meat, and you have, uh, you said the mikvah, and you have all that, and yet the community decides that you need to leave.
2: But I just want to tell you about the kosher meat. You only were allowed to buy once a week on Tuesday because shochet would be in town, and then the shochet, the same person, would travel to Bukhara and other cities to slaughter animals, so then they have kosher meat. And now I have a question for you. Okay. If if they would uh, shecht four cows and two or three of them would come up non-kosher, what happens? The less people less. don't have meat for a week. <laughs> exactly, they have less meat to 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 have, and those other three uh, cows would be sold to Muslims, and right. then they would they would they would buy it and sell it to themselves. So it was very like when you're saying there was a kosher meat. Uh, It was it was a situation where you where you would come to the butcher and you say, hey, you only have to take two pounds. You cannot take six pounds because we didn't have enough kosher meat and you had to accept that. So if you're thinking about in the context of America. If you have uh, cases of meat, you you take it, you freeze it and you have it for a month. You couldn't do that because you had to have this communal understanding that if you buy six to ten pounds, there's not going to be enough for everybody else.
1: So if your your family kept kosher even throughout the USSR,
2: yeah, yeah. Period? So a lot of people. So a lot of times people ask me, where did you become religious?" I always say, "I'm from from birth, birth." So we were observing, you know, keeping kosher, bringing meat from Israel, like chicken. The only way I would eat chicken it would be from Israel. So wow. my father would fly to Israel, cases of uh, meat, bring it, freeze it, and that's how I would eat because it was not worth. Uh, shafting chicken, um, because it's so little meat. So, you know, the rabbi sh- wouldn't sheft like 100 chickens for you, you know, like they don't do one or two, but it's going to be not enough. You make one soup and that's it. So, my father would bring in lots of chickens from Israel. So, yeah, I live that life of, of kosher and Shabbat and, you know, Jewish way of life. It would be a little bit different, I would say, the way I do it now, because now I have more opportunity freedom more knowledge and more information back then it was more about like a real true oral tradition like your grandparents will tell you what you need to do you don't ask why so it's like a true essence of nasev and Ishma. you know they tell you you do it you don't ask questions
1: see but that's the way to do it if you look at some of the great rabbis in the chachamim they said you know when it comes to kosher Ask the women, because they're the ones that have the oral tradition that came down. And that's the way a lot of it needs to be transmitted. So it's actually nice that it was that way, I think. <laughs> There's something about that. Okay, so let's go to the next stage. You, like I started to say, you, you're you decided you are transient and you are moving and your family packs up and moves to New York?
2: Yes, straight to New York.
1: Okay, tell us about what happens. You're a 14-year-old. You have a basic English, from what I understood. No
2: English at all. Only uh, three words and not good ones. Okay. <laughs> from TV. Got it.
1: <laughs> okay, so you come. You're a 14-year-old coming to America with your two older sisters, right? New land. What happens?
2: So right away, I had to figure out. I, I didn't have to figure out, but I was put in the position of becoming in a, a quick adult really quickly. Um, Not the first two or three days, but at least in a few weeks when my parents would be relying on me making decisions for the house. So that would be a whole totally new transformation, being a teenager uh, in America. On top of that, learning and understanding the culture, figuring it out, you know, going through my teenage years. um, At that time, I didn't have a moment of time to figure out about my Judaism, about all of these things, because I had that at home. So I didn't need that as much, only up until I went to to college. But the transition in public school, for example, I went to public school. I didn't went to yeshiva in America. But the transition in public school was very easy for me because my mom always were packing kosher food for me to go to school. So when I went to public school, it was normal for me uh, to have packed lunch. When I and go. were there other
1: Jews in your public school?
2: Yeah. And they were all Bukharian, or they were a mix, or mix, mix. There was some Bukharian, but at that time, we, when I moved in here, I would just look at Jews as Jews, without differentiating them. For I wouldn't, I wouldn't assume that they were Bukharian, but I would, if they're Jewish, that would be enough for me to understand.
1: And they accepted you the same way.
2: Yeah, in the public way, the way I was in public school it was pretty much. Uh, same way even though in some religious groups it wasn't uh wasn't accepted as much which is was the very Explain. interesting combination <laughs> no the way you put on the tefillin the way you put the talit uh for the prayers i remember i was introduced to go to yeshiva when i first moved here um and and it was i was there only for a week and then i that's why after that i transferred into bubble school because i it was very hard for me for that first week because everything I was doing was completely different the way the kids were doing in school. And they were always trying to tell me that I'm putting fill in the wrong way, that I'm putting my Talit the wrong way, and I'm doing everything the wrong way. Where I was trying to, like, figure out, I've been doing that for at least two years now. I was 13, 14, right? Uh, but what later on I figured out, it wasn't the wrong way. It was just I was doing... According to Sephardic traditions.
1: Yeah, you were doing your tradition. That's
2: and they them. were doing, and they were doing, the Ashkenazi way. So, but I didn't understand at that moment. I was, for me, it was like, all right, you tell me I'm doing wrong. Okay, but because of that, I, I was getting a lot of in the trouble. Hey, I don't have a language. I don't understand what these kids want from me. Everybody's like kind of picking on everything I do Jewish. When I've been doing this from day one. Um, and at that time, I think my, you know, it was, uh, my father decided to kind of like, I decided, and I told my father that he should take me to public school system. Uh, because I felt, you felt more
1: at home in the public school system than you did in the yeshiva system, from what I'm understanding.
2: Yeah. I didn't know what the public school going to give me at that time, but I felt like that place where I was, wasn't the right place for me.
1: It's, It's a little sad that you found yourself more at home in, uh, public school setting than you could in a yeshiva setting. But, but to that's give, why you, you said about to change it and we'll get there.
2: Right. But <laughs> to give a credit so then nobody listens to it and says, oh, I knew it, the public school system is much better than the yeshiva yeah. because there are some skeptics about it. I think if I would be placed, if, I, if my family had financial backing to put me in a yeshiva that we would pay ourselves and it would be a good yeshiva, probably my experience would have been a little bit different, I'm assuming, because the school that I went to was the kids that went through all they went through all public schools and all yeshivas and they got kicked out and it was like this school for like all these guys who like tried to make it at okay. least to get their high school diploma. So I'm assuming that's my one of the reasons why my yeah, but you would still be
1: putting on your Talit and feeling wrong in any school you went to. So you know that probably would be true
2: <laughs> I would say my high school experience was discovering what America was. I don't know why, but that's where's my opportunity to do that. Learning English, understanding the dynamics. I first time learned about suspension. I never was suspended throughout my whole year, but I was hoping to get suspended because I was like, I'm going to be out for a whole week at home. I would love that. (laughs) Come on, give me the suspensions. And I was never suspended for the four years in high school. And um, it was very interesting. So um, when I went to college, this would be the finding out my Jewish identity. Why am I Bukharian? What is Bukharian about me?
1: So not Jewish identity. your Bukharian Jewish identity because you've always been Jewish.
2: Correct, correct. But at that time, I got questioned because I started seeing a lot of people who don't keep Shabbat, don't keep Kashrut, but they still identify Jewish. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I saw a girl wearing a Megan David, very pro-Israel, but yet, like, she would, she doesn't, never even been in a synagogue setting. I was like, okay, that's interesting too. So started getting exposed to so many...
1: And that's something that you weren't familiar with from the Bukharian community because everyone had a connection to their religious past.
2: Correct. I mean, some people were, you know, how we call it off the derech, this, that, but essentially people, I haven't heard anybody who's like, oh, I never been in, I never shake a lulaf inside the sukkah. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, oh, I never ate, like, it was very, very interesting uh, for me to start understanding. And at that moment I said, I want to find out more. I want to learn more about this. And I want to tell people more about myself. But first I need to figure out who I am, right? So a lot of times when in, in college people ask me where I am or who are you, I would always say depends who's asking. So like I would say I'm Russian because I speak Russian. But then people were like, but you don't look Russian. I'm like, okay, I'm Bukharian. And I, now I know that they understand what it means to be Russian. Some people would always think that I'm Israeli just is because of my accent, because of the way I look also, especially if I st- spend, spend some time in the sun I look more Israeli, I guess. <laughs> um, and then at some time I said, you know what? Uh, I I was openly walking around and saying, I'm Bukharian, and let me tell you why. And I think I like that idea because it was a conversation starter for me in any circles. And that's why till today, I always encourage people to tell them who you are. If you're Persian, say you're Persian, Bukharian, Tunisian, whoever you come from. And even if you're Ashkenazi, don't say I'm just Ashkenazi, but say. I'm Polish, Hungarian, and Romanian, because that could be an opportunity for conversation starters. And that could lead you to a place where you never thought you'd be able to lead in a, in a specific conversation. And I said, what's the fastest way for me to learn about Jewish community? And I saw it was a college fair with a bunch of clubs representing. So I went out and I started identifying all the Jewish related clubs, and I signed up for the mailing list, every single one of them. It was a Hillel club, Israel club, JSA club, Chabad club, different type of organizations, pro-Israel clubs, and I just signed up for all of them, and I tried to be as engaged as possible, until I I reached out, I was reached out by one of a, a good friend of mine, and she said, Hey, by the way, we have a club called BARS, Baruch Association of Russian Students. And since you speak Russian, why would you join? So I think at that moment, BARS was more closer to me than Hillel was, Jewishly, because I spoke Russian. So I didn't have to explain myself. And it was pretty close to me. So I felt very, very connected to join BARS instead of joining Hillal, because Hillel also had elections. And I, but I didn't, I, I, it felt kind of foreign for me at that time. And I joined bars, I was, you know, vice president of Baruch Association of Russian Students. We did lots of great events, representing Russian culture. And it never occurred to me to bring any of my Bukharian parts to it yet, because I was still kind of trying to fit in and find myself in that area. Um, They accepted that
1: you were one of them.
2: Exactly. I got accepted. Finally, somebody accepted me. Amazing. I go with the flow. Until the moment I felt like, no but there's still something missing then i try out for hillel Um, i was sophomore at that time there were other four seasoned like you know juniors and seniors running against me four other people and i won by majority of the vote and i became the first sophomore president of hillel at baruch college and then somebody later mentioned that i was a second Bukharian president of hillel I was like, great, I wanna meet the first one. What was your Um, campaign platform? My campaign platform at that time was cross-campus community. That was my biggest thing, because I said we're in a business school, and if we're in a business school, it's who you know and not what you know. And if we only know people from Baruch, then it's people from Baruch. But what if we look at New York City as our campus? instead of looking at Baruch at our campus, because everybody was complaining, oh, we don't have a campus life, we don't have campus life. And I said, what if New York City, this whole island is our campus, and we get to be anywhere we want. And this is how I envisioned the Hillel for the years to come. And when I won, I did something interesting where I, most of the people who ran against me, I asked them to be part of my board. And they and and three three out of four joined and became my vice presidents and treasurer and things like that. When I'm looking back right now, my board consisted of the the most diverse people. I had an Ashkenazi Orthodox. I had Ashkenazi Reform. I had Russian speaking. I had Tunisian. I had Iraqi. I had Persian. I was Bukharian. But at that moment. It didn't mean anything to me. For me, it was just the Jewish community. Now, when I'm looking back, I was like, wow, I was already, I was doing this work back then without even thinking about it the way I'm thinking about it, right? Now. And
1: everyone just came together at the Hillel and didn't have these preconceived notions. I think
2: I think one of the biggest reasons was because I was involved in many different clubs. So I pulled people from different groups. So on college campus, people tend to be by their uh, by the places where they feel more comfortable. So you see a lot of Israelis and a lot of Sephardic people and some, a lot of Orthodox uh, in a pro-Israel type of group settings. You see Russians amongst themselves. You see Sephardics amongst themselves. So because I was involved in all those places, I kind of brought them in into the Hillel system. And I said, let's do all of those great stuff that you've been doing under Hillel umbrella. And and they already had connections to those clubs, and was very easy for us to work. When I started it, we had about six clubs on campus. When I finished my term, we had uh, twelve clubs on campus, and our budget went from like six thousand to fifty. 000. So it was it was an, a a great moment, I would say, to of unity, and we've been throwing the biggest Jewish events, college campus events in New York City, so the juice cruise, I don't know if you heard about it, there's like a very famous juice cruise and everybody doing right now juice cruise. Baruch Hillel, amongst other Hillels, was first of Hillel during my time there, who started juice cruise when we rent out a boat and we brought a bunch of Jews on the boat right in the beginning of the year, about August 28th, 27th, which is around my birthday time. And we brought them on a the boat and celebrated, like welcoming everybody back to school. And we did several of those events, all of the Hanukkah events. Um, we did uh, Sukkot events. Many of those events we did, in, in, including many different college campuses, Columbia, uh, NYU, Hunter, Queens College, uh, Seton Island uh, University and many other universities around. And I'm telling you, it was like 800 to 600 people on every event.
1: That's amazing. And, and people from different walks of Jewish life, which is Beautiful. I mean, that's, I wish it would be across everywhere. That would make our life so much easier if everybody respected everybody, but you still advocated for people to promote their own heritage within the greater Jewish dynamic. And you continued with that afterwards. Um, You said you went to business school and yet you really are an activist for Jewish heritage. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. Um, So tell me what made you decide to go into that? Why is that important? So,
2: So to my parents, I say, I sell Judaism idea to other people and heritage idea to other people. So they still understand the backing of my business degree. Uh, No, but by now they already know what I'm doing. I think that moment at JCCA Bukhari and Tea Lounge, that really was a pivot moment for me. Because like I told you, I was searching for my Russian connection. I was accepted, but then I was still, something was missing. And when I went to Hillel, I was like, fine, I'm great. I'm doing all these great things, but I still felt there was something missing. And then when I graduated at that moment, I was like, who do I, who else do I connect? Is there a Bukharian organization in Queens that I could connect with? And there was none, there was nothing like except synagogue, uh, nothing else was existing. So I was part of this organization Ezra, which were taking Russian-speaking Jews to birthright. And with them, I said, let's create a Bukharian birthright trip. And I was like, all right. So at that moment, I was trying to create these Bukharian, Sephardic type of things. And always I was trying and trying and trying. It did not work out because I was always trying to convince other organization to care about Bukharians more than I do. And it was mm-hmm. always a hard thing to do until I got invited to JCCA Bukharian Tea lounge And I was invited by a phenomenal person. She's uh, she's a great banter of mine. Her name is Bella Zelkin. She is the go-to person at any time. Questions to run by. She's always standing by my side and always there with me. And she's she's a great advocate for the Bukharian community who, but if you hear from her last name, Zelkin, nothing to do with Bukharian or Sephardic, but she's a huge advocate for the Bukharian community. So A.G.C. Bukharian Tealach, I created a proof of concept that till today is happening across the board. And anybody who I uh, mentored are doing the same proof of concept is happening. So here it is. I'll reveal it at your podcast today. The proof of concept was the following. My task was to bring Bukharian kids through the door. However, I needed to do it in a way that it was specifically targeted for Bukharian kids. How do you do it? Uh, without putting a billboard and radio and putting in the newspapers that kids don't read and attract a large amount of people without doing it individually. And I started something where I said, what if I create a leadership group of students that will have a role of leaders and in Bukharian teen Lounge? I will mentor them and train them in a way that they they will go and become an ambassadors for themselves and they will bring their friends because at the end of the day if i have 20 people and each one of them bring one we have 40 people at the event i'm done and that's what i started i started building this leadership training program and i created a huge interesting curriculum for them to learn about leadership entrepreneurship um, philanthropy putting events together what it means to... assuming that their Jewish
1: heritage comes from home you gave them the business part
2: exactly through that we start learning and unpacking many different things and I added and added and added more more nuances about Jewish heritage Jewish life but the best thing was they created their own programs in this center and they educated each other and we all learn together. So it wasn't that I would tell them what it is supposed to be, and then they go back home and they would argue with the parent. No, it was all together. And one of my m- moments when I felt like I got it was the time when we had a snowstorm. And JCCA sent out an email saying, all offices closing earlier today, go home. Right. And all the students called me and said, are we open today? said, we supposed to close. What's your option? Please do not close. We're inviting so many people. We're having a Purim event. We have to keep it going. Ah. And I said, but how are you going to get home? But we live locally. It's all local. We're going to make sure nobody coming from Jamaica Estates, which is cross the road. We're going to make sure everybody's going to be local. We'll make an emphasis to it. Please keep it running. Please keep it going. We worked so hard for it. And I was like, guys, but we could postpone. They're like, we got to do it. And we did it. And all of my staff at that time decided to stay. I, I, I was living in Brooklyn at that time. And I remember I moved to Brooklyn at that time. And I was like, how am I going to get home? So I said, OK, I'm staying if the students are staying. And right. all my staff who were local in Queens they said, we're staying too. And we did this amazing. We, had the, we were the only open institution, I would say, with lots of kids, maybe marketing and Jewish education. And uh, Jewish advocacy and Jewish identity could be a thing for
1: And It sounds like it is. You instilled this pride in their Judaism that they wanted to come there. They wanted to be together for these events. Uh, that's incredible. And then you built on it. Is this the same group? I don't know if this is the same group or another group that you actually took back, right? You took a group back to Bukhara.
2: So we had this phenomenal program. At Thursday when I came to JCCA, I said, we have to go to Uzbekistan. You can't have a Bukharian organization trip uh, organization without taking them to Uzbekistan. So at that time, the director of the center, she said, but we have a grant to take them to Israel. I said, everybody goes to Israel. Let's go to Uzbekistan. They said, but the Israeli, sec- I said, second year is go to Uzbekistan. They said, no, but second year, Israeli Bukharians coming to New York. I said, oh, come on. We got to go to Uzbekistan. And then I remember she reached out to me. And she said, "Marasha, you're going you're gonna to love this. I said, what is it? They're postponing our grant, UJ Federation of New York. And they said that if you would take a third year, what would you do different? And she pitched Uzbekistan as the third year. So it was a teenagers in, in, in New York, teenagers in Israel, Bukharians, mm-hmm. first visit each other. And then those two groups with a parent, would go to Uzbekistan with one parent. Wow. And I was advocating to bring parents because I said, if we take parents, it's going to be much more transformative than if you go on their own. Because on their own, it's going to be just going to Israel or going to any other countries. With a parent, it's a totally different relationship. So now going to Uzbekistan in 2013 was my first time going to, to Uzbekistan. Back, on back, yeah. After uh, coming here in 2001. And it was my father's first time going back. And we went back during the government that was not so welcoming to tourists at that time. So we, you know, so it was very very scary for a lot of of the parents, including my father, to go back, like to figure out how is it going to be, you know, what's going to happen. But we did it. It was the first of its kind trip in 2013. I would not recall any anything like that happened, bringing teenagers with their parents or even teenagers to Uzbekistan, and. It was the most transformative experience ever.
1: Explain what SAMI is. You mentioned it at the beginning. We understand what you're doing there and why you're doing it.
2: So I would say SAMI is an extension of every single work that I've been doing throughout my career. As I said, I was always working on different Jewish organizations, and I always were convincing them to work with Sephardic community. With SAMI, I don't have to convince anybody but me to actually do that work. So, oh, and, for the
1: funders,
2: but yeah. <laughs> and, and funders as well to support us. And we're very, very grateful for them to do that because without them, this wouldn't happen. So 2020 hits, pandemia. And at that time, I had students reaching out to me saying, hey, we are at home. A lot of people had this conflict of what's going on between vaccination, vaccinations, many different things, parents, hospitalizations, people losing people, people losing grandparents, and they needed a place to come together. And since I have a social work background, I've uh, tried to create this, you know, a group together where we could just come and socialize and talk about, you know, what's going on, what they're going through. And all of these students were the students that I've asked, uh, at my students from, while I'm teaching behind Jewish history class at Queens College, plus the students that I worked with at Queens College Hill Health because I was a director there as well, and many other students from around New York City. And those meetings that we just had, we had about uh, 12 students coming together on a weekly basis. It was just conversations and we did some different type of exercises and, and talked about you know life Turned to be a full flash of, uh, curriculum because students said since we're already gathering and everybody pretty much consistent how about if we learn something we start getting emails and applications from other states and not only from Bukharians and at that time I said okay so this is not just a Bukharian issue it's the whole it's a whole Sephardic and Mizrahi issue but also it's not just New York issue and at that moment there was a decision made that this needs to be an organization that solely supports and has their 95% of their funding and thinking thinks about college students. And that's who we are. We are we're not a uh, program on college campus, we are an organization on college campus. 95% of our budget goes strictly directly to college campuses. And I'll give you an interesting uh, moment that that just recently happened. In California, specifically in Santa Barbara, they always Uh, have this issue what to do during the Shavuot, okay? Mm -hmm. You go back home and you celebrate with your parents or you stay in school. If you stay in school, which davening do you go? So mostly prayers there is Ashkenazi. So how do you do it? What do you do? What do you learn? It becomes a lot of logistics for students to handle. So I had student group that uh, we we have one of our hubs is there in, in Santa Barbara. And these are the students who created a Shavuot program? It was a it was a shabbaton that they created themselves. We don't call it shabbaton; we call it uh, 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 leadership summit uh, because we because they, we were learning about leadership and entrepreneurship in all of them. And the interesting part about every single leader of every single Jewish club on campus was participating in that event.
1: That's wonderful.
2: So then in a few words, I just want to say it because I kind of went to the details. SAMI is a Sephardic life on campus. And we are building and supporting students on college campus so that they could build and support Jewish life around themselves and in their communities. And we are we, uh, making sure that the, the organizations around those students are more and more diverse and more open um, for Sephardic way of life. And we very uh, strategic about it, making sure they have enough doors, making sure they have kippot, making sure that the kosher standard is there, they have a culture access to food.
1: What and- according- do you make sure is there? Huh? Which sidur do you make sure is there? That already gets complicated.
2: <laughs> no problem, but as long as the students, the students are um, asking, so they could say we want a Persian, we want a Syrian, or they, we could take the regular scroll Sephardic sidur with English and Hebrew, that has different type of uh, deviation.
1: Oh, that comes in Ashkenazi and Sephardi too, and uh, Edota Mizrach. So
2: you know. Correct, correct, but Etoda Mizrach is the one that we're sending it out, and there are. Oh, okay. there are We're sending a Torah Mizrah, that's what we're sending.
1: Okay, so we always like to end with, um, if there's one thing you want future generations to know about Jewry, or your children, you have children, sometimes we have people without children, but what what do you want your children to know about Judaism? What do you want to make sure they can tell other people about Judaism?
2: I think there are certain things that we are always afraid of is to normalize things, like normalize good things. For example, a lot of times when people are looking at Sephardic and Mizrahi people, there's always this notion, oh, you adapted this culture from the local community. The Joma, the the Bukharian robe you're wearing, is because Muslims wearing it. The food that you're eating is because the Muslims or Arabs were eating it. The songs that you're singing is because the local community was singing. So there's always this notion that Sephardic and Mizrahi people, you adapt something from other people and it's not truly yours. And I always want to tell other people to, or the people who are listening to us, Sephardim and not Sephardim, to think about it. How do we do stuff in America and in Israel? How do we dress the sync, the music that we listen? The weddings, when we do, and we have bridesmaids, or maybe we don't have bridesmaids, how we dress up to weddings, what do we do? Where is that was adopted from? If it wasn't from the Muslim community, probably it was from the Christian community as well, or from the community where we lived in. So I think the idea of that it was never ours or it's not truly yours, instead of looking at that, I would like to offer a new approach. And the approach is... Jewish people, when they see something good, they would take it and they would always make Jewish thing out of it. But if they see something is detrimental and bad, they would not touch it. So if we see a Jewish community celebrating with specific music, whether it's in, um, in Yiddish or in, in Arabic or in Farsi or eating specific food, whether it's gefilte fish or it's, uh, you know, oshtoki, many other things understanding that the reason why we have that in our position possession as a treasure is because there's something good in that and we took it and we cherished it and because that's what the jewish people are known for
1: um i love that i think that's great and i i'm the concept that we can all learn from each other too We, we need to have a pride in our heritage and we can also be influenced by the other Jewish cultures as well and incorporate them. And one of the last
2: things I want to mention for those who are Ashkenazim and listening to this, and I'm hoping you're having those audiences. We have a few. <laughs> a lot of times, a lot of times there is this whole conversation about, oh, I'm Ashkenazi. I'm just like, oh, I'm just simple Ashkenazi, but tell me more. It's more interesting about you. I prayed several Shabbat with the Haredi Jewish community. Hasidim. And if you look at Hasidim, just them as an example. I like to take small communities as an example, like Bukharian. You take an example and you could make a whole study out of it. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Hasidim. Just look at Hasidim. If you unveil all of the you know, the, 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 the garment that they're wearing and you're really paying attention to how they look like, they all look different. They have gingis, white, darker skin, lighter skin, blue eyes, dark hair, long hair, curly, you name it different type of features. So when we saying, oh, Ashkenazim is one, Pasifaradim are different, I would have to double check and think about it. Maybe there's something that we're really not looking into our own communities. And I would love to encourage other people to really dig in into your identity and reclaim your identity. I love
1: it. I love it. The personal connected to the whole. We talk about it as a rope. We each have our own strands and together we tie ourselves together tighter, uh, stronger, sorry. So exactly what you just said. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate this. It was a long time coming. So thank you for your time. And uh, we will talk soon because there's so much more to continue on your mission and we want to be a part of it. So
2: thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening. Reclaiming Identity is produced and edited by Moshe Singer and executive produced by Dalia Aroussi and Dora Aroussi. Our theme music is by Vanessa Paloma. Be sure to check her out on Spotify. Be a part of the reclamation. Subscribe to
1: the Reclaiming Identity podcast on our website, instituteofjewishexperience.org, on our Facebook page, Spotify, or Apple Music. Follow our programs on our website
0: and the Institute of Jewish Experience channel on YouTube. And please help support these and other ASF Institute of Jewish Experience efforts by donating today.